Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman. Welcome to another episode of the Oregon Bridge podcast. The wishes of the Republican base in Oregon are sort of directly at odds with the interests of the Republican Party statewide in terms of winning office. Conservatism for the last few decades <laughs> hasn't really conserved much. Reagan would look at people who call themselves Reaganites now and would be horrified. American conservatism has had essentially the same conversations every 10 years for the last 60. Like none of this is new. What is our role in the world? It's really the post-war American story. And we just keep trying to rehash what a conservative approach to being America is. All right, everybody, welcome back. Today's intro is brought to you by me and me exclusively. My co-host, Alex Titus, is feeling under the weather. He actually got his first COVID vaccine shot, and he's definitely feeling the effects. So uh, PSA to everyone out there, feeling sick from the shot is definitely preferable to actually getting COVID. And we're looking forward to having Titus back very soon. In fact, we're recording an episode in just a couple of days. But today's episode... We've got Nate Hockman and Micah Meadowcroft, two leading conservative intellectual voices in the country. They both have roots in the Pacific Northwest, but are sort of on the national scale. Nate is an associate contributor for Young Voices and a 2021 Publius Fellow at the Claremont Institute. And he writes for outlets like National Review, City Journal, American Conservative, and others. He's also regularly on TV and radio. Micah is the managing editor of the American Conservative Magazine, and he used to work as the White House liaison for the U.S. EPA. Spoiler alert, it was not for a Democratic administration. These are two young people who kind of represent a different Republican Party than what folks might be used to, particularly in Oregon. Uh, we spend a bunch of this episode parsing out what does it mean to be a conservative, who are members of the conservative movement, we talk about Reaganism and like the sort of philosophical foundation of what it meant to be a conservative in the 80s versus today. And there's some there's some discussion of what Reagan would think about the Republican Party today and what Reaganism really looks like in a modern context. Uh, we talk about DC's political culture versus Oregon's political culture and the nuances there. I think what's most interesting, you'll have to fast forward in the conversation if you aren't as interested in this sort of intellectual philosophy side. In the back half of the podcast, we talk about Oregon specifically and Oregon's political system and political environment. And it was really interesting for me to hear their theories about why the Republican Party performs so poorly here, particularly in light of our previous conversations with folks like Alex Garlados and obviously Dallas Hurd recently, the chair of the Republican Party, and Representative Christine Drazen, the minority leader in the Oregon House, all who represent really different parts of the Oregon Republican Party, or not even the party, I guess, but members of the party in the state of Oregon. And so we, we, we talk about that. And I kind of push back a little bit on this theory that the Republican Party, if they just nominated more moderate people, all of a sudden they would win higher office when the evidence doesn't necessarily prove that to be true. You've got statewide candidates like Dr. Newt Bueller, Dr. Bud Pierce, both of whom were on the sort of moderate side of the spectrum. Then you've got social conservative Dennis Richardson, who actually won versus the first two who lost. You've got Monica Webby, who is a moderate with national backing who lost. And then you've got Joe Ray Perkins, who we all sort of agree was not a serious candidate, embraced QAnon, like very conservative. And she lost by about the same margin as Monica Webby. So we have a discussion about what 
what is actually going on here? What are the factors at play when the Republican Party continues to lose elections? And then what will it take for them? Interesting for the three conservatives on the call, Alex, Nate, and Micah, to hear their varying thoughts about what it would take for that to shift. So definitely looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this conversation. If you have feedback for the podcast or you have questions you'd like to ask us, shoot us an email. We're always open to hearing your suggestions for guests, your suggestions for different subjects that you want us to dive into. Our email address is OregonBridgePodcast at gmail.com. And if you are, for example, running for governor or thinking about running for governor and you want to talk to Alex and I, we'd love to have you on. So the one thing I did want to touch on before we uh, transition into this week's episode with Nate and Micah is there was a comment made at the end, I think it was by Nate, that talked about the teachers union and sort of had drawn the dot between what he called corruption from the teachers union to this line of teachers being first in line to the vaccine. And I really do want to have a full episode on like the labor movement in Oregon and the power of labor unions and sometimes what I think of as a perception of more power than there actually is sometimes. And so to use OEA as the example, which is the Oregon Education Association, the state's largest teachers union, Nate sort of presented them as this like super powerful force that just dictates how things go. But I think the reality is a lot more complicated than that. So for example, the legislature is not the one who put teachers, quote, first in line for the vaccine. And I don't think it's also fair to say that teachers were first in line, but they did receive higher precedent than others in other states, for example. But it wasn't the legislature who made that decision. It was the governor. And there's actually quotes from leaders of the the teachers union, including the Portland Association of Teachers, the largest local affiliate, who basically said the governor put them in a terrible position and that they never asked to um, be first in line. Um, And then I was looking back, I remember the article and it took me a while to find it, but there was an article in 2011, the catch line, it was written by Nigel Jaquist of the Willamette Week, the sort of legendary political reporter. And the tagline is, the Oregon Education Association gave Kitzhaber more than a million bucks and now he's giving it pay cuts and pink slips. And I don't believe, that was for his 2010 election. I don't think he was endorsed by OEA in his 2014 election. So I think that kind of demonstrates the more complex history. Obviously, OEA was very against the cuts to PERS, the public employee retirement system, that Democratic majorities in the House and the Senate moved through the legislature. Um, We could have a whole episode talking about those things, but the comment was made later in the episode. And so normally I would have given that sort of response impromptu in the moment, but we were already over time. So I didn't feel like it was appropriate for me to do that there. But I'm the host of the show, so I get to do it in the intro if I want to. But yeah, that's the intro. Hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Please remember to give us a five-star rating. A little context there. The reason why we ask for that is because the more ratings we get, uh, the easier it is for other people to find the podcast if they're looking for a political podcast or an Oregon politics podcast. It helps us show up in search results. So please do, if you wouldn't mind, give us a five-star rating. And even better is if you can write a review and say what you like about the show. It would mean a lot to us. But other than that, we really appreciate you listening each week and looking forward to seeing you next time. Enjoy today's episode. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge. Today, we're really excited to have our first, I guess, four people on the podcast. I almost called that a a duopoly, but that's obviously (laughs) a different thing. Uh, Bad start right away. But really excited to have Micah and Nate here who are two. I wouldn't even necessarily call them up and coming because they're already doing really cool things uh, on the national stage, but they're Two Oregonians, both of them are conservative, really excited to have them on the pod and ask them what's going on in the national scene and then as well as some of the things that are happening with the GOP in Oregon. So 
Micah, how, how are you doing today? What's up? I'm well, thanks for having me on guys. As Titus said, my name is Micah Meadowcroft. I'm the managing editor at the American Conservative. And I have to start by complicating my identity as an Oregonian by saying, yes, I was born in Portland from Portland, but my family lives on the Washington side of the Columbia River in Vancouver. So a suburb that Oregonians will be familiar with, but the rest of the country has never ever heard of the first <laughs> Vancouver by the way. And so, yeah, I consider myself probably more of a Pacific Northwesterner in general and follow both Washington state and Oregon politics and Portland city politics. As long as you're not part of greater Idaho, we're okay. We're <laughs> part of the team. I hope we talk about that though. That'd be fun. <laughs> Definitely. Nate, what about you? Yeah, What's your I'm, background? I'm Nate Hawkman. I'm a, finishing up my senior year at Colorado College right now, native of Portland, but my family lives out in Hood River, which is like an hour east, and which is where I am right now. So we got out of Portland like a year ago, which was a fortuitous timing. And I'm a, a Young Voices Associate contributor. I write pretty regularly for outlets like National Review and, and City Journal, American Conservative sometimes. And uh, I'm a Publius Fellow at the Claremont Institute this summer, which I think Alex did a few years ago, if I remember correctly. I did, yes. Great fellowship. We love our folks at Claremont. And actually, I think Claremont will come up a little bit in this conversation Good. later today, which I'm excited about. So part of, of the frame for this episode and what I want to do is, of course, all of our listeners are local Oregonians. We really want to help them understand a little bit just kind of what's happened on the national level with the GOP. So Nate, maybe you can start us off. Can you just give us a super high level, 30,000 foot view of, let, let's start with conservatism in the Reagan era, right? So Ronald Reagan, overwhelming victory in 1980, overwhelming victory in 1984. We have Reaganism, of course, some other people may consider this to be called boomerism, which I think is something that we'll talk a little bit about today. But Nate, how do we get from someone like Ronald Reagan to electing Donald Trump just what, 30 or 25 years later? Yeah, it's a good question. I think a lot of people, both in terms of Reagan's conservative critics now from the populist side and his defenders, misunderstand Reagan. I think what is called Reaganism now is this really sort of perverse, emaciated kind of libertarianism, which is not a kind of politics that Reagan actually would have recognized. He was much more populist than people think he is. But it's true that Reagan represented this very free market oriented, libertarian, aesthetic, limited government brand of conservatism, which is not the brand of conservatism that Donald Trump represents. There are still elements of it in the Republican Party to one extent or another, but the party right now is trying to understand what Trumpism meant because it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And that is broadly being interpreted to one extent or another by people like Josh Hawley, to a certain extent, Marco Rubio, J.D. Vance, who's running for, for Senate in Ohio, as a brand of conservatism, which is organized around culturally conservative and socially conservative uh, concerns and views economics as a means to a sort of socially conservative end rather than free markets as an end unto themselves. And that often means being more willing to use state power, both in interventions in the economy and uh, in a more sort of assertive stance towards cultural issues to try to advance conservative ends rather than this libertarian orthodoxy, which has, has reigned supreme in the Republican Party for a few decades now, which says that we can't try to use the government to make life better for our people, and that we have to essentially let corporations decide what to do and how to order the economy without any input from policymakers. Mm. So following up on that, and Michael, we'll have you start on this one. Oregon's political culture is very different from the sort of national, it's less nuanced, I would say. So like in Oregon, on the Democratic Party side, everybody's a progressive. 
And even if you're a moderate, you call yourself a progressive. Like everybody's a progressive. That's just the way it works. We don't really have much of a Bernie wing in state politics, which is interesting for Oregon. But like there, we had we had a state representative on um, Wednesday Campos, who I think is like starting to change that. But there's no real equivalent of the, the Bernie phenomenon at the national level. And on the GOP side, it seems to me you've got like you're either a Trump America first Republican or you're not. You're an old school traditional Republican. And those are that's like the those are the factions. And then Titus and I were talking about this earlier. You've got at the national level, you've got people who identify as paleocons or neocons or reformacons, social conservatives, libertarians. Um, there's a lot more nuance and layers. So can you walk us through how you perceive of the conservative movement right now nationally? Like who are the emergent folks and what do they represent? And then on a personal level, where do you fall in those broad categories um, in terms of what you believe in politics? Sure. So I think labels tend to actually get in the way. And I think the Oregonian kind of simplifications, part of those comes out of the like the big reality in West Coast politics, and particularly the PNW and Oregon most specifically, is that it's a it's a pioneer region and, and, and a fairly young part of the country still, and you know, much less densely populated than the East Coast and things like that. And so like that there's not a Bernie wing in Oregon makes perfect sense because our post-industrial moment is a little different. Like Portland and Seattle transitioned from being, you know, port, genuine, well, they're still operating ports, but like from being industrial cities to being yuppie havens pretty smoothly and, you know, new tech moved in just fine and things like that. And so the kind of post-industrial aspects to Oregon is, is really like timber, you know, timber country and what happens to, you know, the sawmills and things like that. And that's a different feel than the appeals that people are making in the Rust Belt and in the Upper Northeast. I want to get back to some of the things Nate said, which I thought were really excellent, um, but he highlights, I mean, Reaganism, I think he's right to say, describes not Reagan, but describes a kind of an orthodoxy that was imposed upon the Republican Party after Reagan and using the charisma of the Reagan presidency and the, you know, the kind of total victory to give it legitimacy. And my concern in contemporary national politics, especially for the Republican Party, is that this conversation around Trumpism is going to do the same thing. So the solution for one moment, right, Reagan provided a solution that the American voters wanted, and then it calcified into a sort of dogmatism that has very quickly, you know, over the last three decades, proven itself to be highly counterproductive and gotten us stuck. What, in a what bunch do you of mean by highly counterproductive? Like, what are some specific examples that, that you would think of? People had put forward, but you think we're actually basically hurting the country in that way, using kind of the Reaganism framework. Sure. I think, I mean, I think Republicans were happy to go along with Clinton in, you know, NAFTA or post-89. We didn't understand what to do with our hegemonic moment. So we got ourselves involved all over the world in stupid forever wars. You know, there's, I'm forgetting who coined the phrase, but, you know, invade the world, invite the world type of open borders policy. Bernie used to say that that was a Coke thing. And then he needed to try to you know, win within a democratic primary context. And so he stopped talking about that as much. But I think he was right that that's a, a certain kind of libertarian economic approach to the free movement of capital and people. And so like Reagan was a nationalist to some degree in a way that is not true of Reaganism, but it was simplified because we had the USSR to fight. So what I wanted to get at was that contemporary conversations around what is Trumpism, I think will fall into this or danger of falling into the same trap where you have people looking for a white paper stack of policies that encapsulates their idea of why Donald Trump was successful. And they're trying to recapture that magic based off of these proposals rather than realizing that, no, there was a, there was a particular figure that connected to the voters 
and they believed that he was going to fight for them. It's really that simple, I think. National politics really comes down to that plus establishment machines making sure the money works well. And so I think that contemporary conversations about the future of the GOP stand in danger of getting bogged down in stuff that the voters don't care about at all. There was a recent essay, and I won't try to timestamp this too much, arguing about the disconnect between the cultural predilections of the Trump base. And obviously, it's, it can be very easily overstated, like how homogenous they are. But there's a sort of, you know, they are kind of, as you said, it's red, red Oregon, right? It's a lot of, it's, it's my guns and uh, my farm property and, and, and leave me the hell alone. And that's very different than the kind of wannabe Boston Brahmins that make up a lot of the intellectual side of the new right. And so I think there's a disconnect there too, where you, in the same way that we can make fun of Reaganism, I mean, the memes around 2015 when, when Reaganism, zombie Reaganism was being bashed, bow ties became passe and it was cringe. <laughs> it was cringe and not based <laughs> to wear bow ties. Um, because there was this idea that like the old policy eggheads at all the different think tanks and stuff were just shills for industry and shills for financialization and who had, you know, sold the American workers down river and sent things to China. And that was true. And the issue though, is like the aesthetics of that, you know, you might fall into again, where you have a bunch of people who 20 years ago would have worn bow ties, but now are saying like, it's us, the new right. And we're going to be the voice for the unheard American voter. So, so, and, so and that's ben, a dangerous I actually want to, yeah, Ben, I actually want to bring you in here. I know that we've only been recording for like 10 minutes now, but from what I have heard, Micah obviously has a big job at a major conservative publication. Nate clearly is Publius Fellow going to do big things in the conservative movement. So far, they've, well, not, they both haven't said the exact same things, but Micah bashed the Koch brothers. They've bashed <laughs> the Iraq war, which is a Republican staple. They've both expressed skepticism for its big business and free markets in general. Is this kind of shocking to you as a progressive to hear like, wait, like all this stuff, I thought like people loved Reaganism. Like, what are these young people talking about in a sense? Like, is any of this, I'm curious of your progressive side, like, are you shocked by any of this at all, which you heard so far? No, I'm not shocked by it. I mean, obviously we spent some time in DC living together. And so I was exposed to some of our friends who I think are similarly intellectual in their approach. Like what, what for, for me, the question is always like, you know, Nate and Micah are clearly like well-read in, deeply intellectual thinkers who are writing about this and talking about this where is the overlap with the voters? And Micah, what you said really is resonating with me though, because I do feel like in Oregon, you've got the Trump copycats, like people who literally made their campaign slogan, make Oregon great again, which just didn't, it didn't resonate with, with like they lost their primaries. And I think so, like it does speak to the fact like there's something to Trumpism and to Donald Trump as a figure for a moment that appealed to Republican voters. But it's not, it doesn't seem to have transitive properties to other ambitious politicians who are trying to latch on, or at least in the same way. But yeah, so we'll talk a little bit more about this when we talk about the Oregon GOP. But before we get there, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to push you a little bit. And Titus, actually, I'll start with you. So you have to use a label or some labels. What kind of a conservative are you? Do you use the Trump label when you describe yourself? I'm, I'm a no labels guy. <laughs> you're, you're, you're a third way Republican. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> No, this is this is a joke. There's literally an organization, by the way, because everything has to have an organization in DC for the audience called No Labels, no labels. which is like the most like corporate funded thing ever with like the squishy moderates from both sides. So I don't really think they do anything. I even think they actually paid Akon 
to make a rap video for them. Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. So if you took away anything from this conversation, it's that a lot of the sort of policy area welfare states in DC waste a lot of money on very dumb things. Uh, but yeah, getting back to that, I would say, no, I mean, specifically with me, it's been, it's been such a fascinating ride because back in college, I was like a total Ron Paul libertarian. Uh, I started a libertarian club on campus that made the GOP people very mad at the University of Oregon, which I thought was funny, but I basically thought, we're all part of the same party. My God, I never wore the bow tie and I wasn't <laughs> exactly in that audience, but I was like sort of teetering on the fence basically. But no, I mean, I thought basically free market solution to everything. Like that's how we get prosperity for Americans. The social issues are important, but they really don't matter. But I mean, after even before the 2016 election, I did obviously vote for, for President Trump. I thought like, this is really the only guy who's talking about actually helping workers and talking about social issues and questioning policies on trade and immigration. So that just dramatically shifted my views on, on a number of things. And yeah, I don't really know what a good label would be because I kind of have some, well, a little bit more America first. Yeah, more populist, more America first on the immigration and trade stuff. So a little bit more hawkish on the foreign policy areas. But Nate, I'm curious from you too, how, because I mean, you're in college right now, obviously you're about to enter the workforce soon, sort of like how, how has your labels changed or like, what would you describe yourself as? I generally refer to myself as someone who's broadly on the new right. I think I said that before we started recording. I'm a little sort of more skeptical of some of the like nationalist populist labels, because I, I still think that is a movement intellectually and policy-wise. It's still very much in its infancy. And a lot of the sort of first, you know, they're throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what sticks, which is how any movement starts. But some of their prescriptive policies still, I think, really miss the mark and are just short-sighted and not a good idea. But I'm broadly sympathetic to the realignment, to the new right, to this idea, essentially, that conservatism for the last few decades <laughs> hasn't really conserved much. It's, it's, a, it's a sort of a bumper sticker slogan, but it's actually true. What they've been successful at is cutting taxes, you know, uh, allowing con uh, consolidated corporate power to become more powerful and, you know, some wins in like gun rights, which, which they have been successful for. But besides that, I mean, the country has lurched left. We've seen a cultural atomization, a decline in religiosity at a sort of unprecedented rate, declining birth rates, declining uh, marriage rates. There's any, any metric culturally, we are in big trouble. And the conservative movement, our answer to that for decades has been every time we get in power, we'll cut your taxes more, right? <laughs> and the problems that are facing 21st century America are not high taxes or overregulation. I'm someone who generally likes low taxes, generally likes a pro-business regulatory environment, but it is just, it is absurd to look at the landscape in America today and say, the policy prescription here is, uh, is, is tax cuts. Which, you know, I, I view Trump's presidency as sort of a missed opportunity in a lot of ways because he tapped into an energy and sort of instinctively understood this and instinctively understood that the Republican voters were not where Republican elites were and really were thirsting for a more comprehensive conservative governing vision. But he often wasn't actually interested in governing. So he would outsource his policy agenda to Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell would do, and Paul Ryan would do tax cuts, right? Because that's sort of where they are and that's where their donors are. So to, to echo a, a really cogent point that Michael made earlier, I'm on the new right, but I'm not someone who thinks that like Reaganism for the most part was a failure or was the wrong direction. I think it was the right policy prescription for the most part with some exceptions for the moment. But Reagan's self-understanding, the way he understood his political project, was the application of these timeless conservative principles 
in terms of policy to the particular needs of the moment. What, you know, what America needed in the moment with the Cold War, with stagflation in the 70s was, uh, you know, a pretty aggressive tax cut regime, a lot of military spending and the projection of American military power abroad, and, you know, a variety of other things. But Reagan would look at people who call themselves Reaganites now, 30, 40 years later, doing the same exact policies and would be horrified, right? Because this is, that was never, it was never intended Mm. to be the same policy prescriptions ad nauseum. It was an attempt to be, to apply timeless conservative principles in terms of policy to the needs of the moment. Those aren't our needs anymore. That's not what America in 2021 needs. And it is frankly sort of mind boggling to me that you still have a lot of conservatives who still think that basically it's fine to just do tax cuts and deregulation every time you get into power because high taxes aren't top 10 problems in America today. Uh, so what we need right now is a is creative policymakers and thinkers who are willing to do what Reagan did and take conservative principles and apply them creatively to what America needs right now. So that's one of the exciting things about thinkers like Hawley and Rubio and, and some of the intellectuals on the new right, particularly, is, is the fact that even though I don't always agree with the policy prescriptions, they're willing to actually step outside of the dogmas and orthodoxies and bumper stickers about socialism and actually think creatively about what to do and what a conservatism that is robust and capable of actually winning and governing rather than just doing obstruction and tax cuts whenever we get into power looks like. So it's yeah. it's, it's very it's a very open question what that looks like in the future, but it's a it's an exciting time to be a young conservative. No, that's a that's a perfect transition to what I want to ask about next, which is young people and uh, the GOP's record with young people in elections. And there's a perception out there that the Republican Party struggles with young people. When I was in college, when Alex and I were in college, which, uh, Mike, I think you're about you're a you're a millennial. And I think, Nate, you're a, a Zoomer, technically. So the the like most vocal student group was talk, uh, Turning Point USA which like famously has the like socialism sucks and big government sucks. The like very much like what you're talking about in terms of like old school Reaganism, like just never, never change. Like keep the, keep the hits on coming. So I'm Although curious- Charlie Kirk, Charlie Kirk has recently hopped on the populist nationalist bandwagon just because he's oh, really? a grifter and that's where the energy <laughs> is. Yeah. I was going to say, Oh really? But then I realized that doesn't surprise me at all. Not at all. Yeah. Um, so I guess I'm curious, like, can you, Walk us through what does being like, do you think that young conservatives or young Republicans have certain through lines that are similar? Like, is that a block within the Republican Party or is it as diverse as the broader sort of Republican Party? That's part one. And then part two is electorally speaking there. there I think the conventional wisdom f- like before Trump was like, you know, the, the Republican Party needs to be like more moderate on social issues if it's ever going to win with young people. And that seems to be gone now. So yeah, I guess part one is like young people in the Republican Party, who are they? What do they look like? And then part two is like, what will it take to bring more young people in in terms of voters? Michael, let's start with you. Yeah, I'll take a stab at the first part. I think Nate follows the horse race politics better than I do. As far as what young people in the in American conservatism right now looks like, I think there's a ton of diversity in uh, if we had to label people and as far as what their priorities are. But I think what unites them is that they recognize, I mean, they're all facing the same set of problems, which is like bad economic prospects, worthless college degrees, and huge amounts of personal debt, a difficulty mating and marrying and producing children, technology increasingly saturating our life in ways that are difficult to navigate and dehumanizing and alienating, increasing substance abuse, the realization that what is the last 20 years 
of war in the Middle East gotten us? So I think the discontents shared by late millennials and, and older Zoomers are all the same. And so the problems are really clear and the conversation is around how to address those. You know, on the labeling question, like uh, this is my, my, my dumb response is my politics are really simple. I'm for good things and I'm against bad things. And, <laughs> <Me too. laughs> uh, and, and, and I think that's, I mean, that's what it comes down to. And, and that there's a certain account of human beings that I think conservatism is about preserving. And so I guess, you know, if we wanted to add more labels, we could say like family first or something like that. Politically, that's like federalism, right? That I think that there are certain local modes of life that are worth preserving and that the more we open up the country to the forces of global capital, the more we dissolve those ties that bond us to each other locally and, you know, preserving like, you know, the American conservative likes to describe ourselves, our magazine as Main Street conservatism and not in the Chamber of Commerce sense, uh, which would be more nationalization and more uh, globalization, but rather in kind of small town America sense and just preserving local character. So I think to me, the diversity of American conservatives is the goal in part that, that I want there to be a particular Oregon Republican. And I want there to be a particular California Republican, which we're seeing, you know, we got two Claremont guys here, uh, so to speak, or, you know, Nebraska is going to look different. Uh, ben Sass is actually, you know, as divisive as he can be for a lot of people, even on, especially amongst Republicans, he's doing an incredible job of just being a Senator for Nebraska. And that's what actually frustrates people, right? Is that he doesn't always make the move on the national game that they think he will or should. Well, I was just going to say to that point, you've got Charlie Baker in Massachusetts, who is a very different Republican than other Republicans who seems to be doing well. Governor Scott in Vermont, Governor Hogan in Maryland, who like have adopted, I think like specific to their state's political culture, a different kind of Republicanism that yeah. seems to be aligned with what you're talking about. And so, yeah, I mean, there's some, there's certain baselines, right? I think I mean, I'm personally very pro-life and I think that that should be, a, you know, that's a national issue at a certain point. You can't, if you really do think it's murder, then it, there's something broken in your head if you think like you're okay with the next town over doing a bunch of murders, right? That, that, that there's a kind of, there are certain lines that have to be drawn and stuck with. But in general, I think that the future of the Republican Party and what, what young people are looking for is the ability to live where they are in a way that doesn't feel like it's about to be swallowed up by either just sort of the media hyper-reality that we're all living in online or uh, global capital. Nate, walk us through the horse race politics of uh, getting young people to vote for you. Yeah, well, getting young people to vote for Republicans has always been difficult. Uh, Republicans almost never win the under 30 or under 25 votes. Again, Reagan was an exception here. He, um, he won young people. I don't think he'd win this generation of young people, um, but, but Gen X was a sort of unusually conservative generation. And Reagan's brand of conservatism had the same kind of appeal of like a sort of Obama-esque progressivism. It was optimistic and forward-looking and about the possibilities of America. And that kind of disposition appeals to young people, which is why progressives usually win young people, because that is a way of talking rhetorically and a sort of political disposition that just lends itself more easily to progressivism than conservatism. Conservatives aren't very good at doing that. Um, but I, in, in terms of like the actual young Republicans and young conservatives in the party, I think it's important to sort of make distinctions uh, because by polling just sort of the broad base of people under the age of 30 who vote Republican or under the age of 35 who vote Republican, they are more socially liberal. And they are sort of, you know, broadly, they're, they're more pro-immigration than older uh, Republicans. They're way more pro-gay marriage than older Republicans. Uh, they're more concerned about climate change than older uh, Republicans. There's a, they're, they're 
more willing to say that like diversity makes America better than older Republicans. You can kind of go down the list, but they're uh, very much inculcated in the sort of millennial and Gen Z culturally laissez-faire way of thinking. But the energy on the sort of intellectual and political class of young conservatives is very much on the new right side. You have like young conservative activists who are sort of squishy, uh, never Trump, culturally liberal uh, types who represent probably broadly where the, the base of under 30 Republicans are. And you see that with you know groups like Gen Z GOP and you know a variety of other uh, young conservative groups that um, are not necessarily where I think the Republican Party should go. But the intellectual energy, and I'm, this isn't an original insight, this is something that's been remarked on a lot, is within the conservative movement is very much on the people who are experimenting with new ideas and having this really rich debate and talking about what a sort of realignment conservatism would look like. And that genre of conservatism, the new right, is particularly popular in the younger generation of conservative intellectuals. The people who are sort of defending the emaciated Reaganite fusionist uh, sort of uh, boomer conservatism are often, you know, boomers and, uh, and older people who are very entrenched in an older way of thinking. Whereas the people who haven't sort of been inculcated in that way of thinking for decades and are the next generation of conservative leaders, uh, intellectually speaking on the sort of, you know, writers like Micah at the American conservative has been a leader uh, in this and, and at a bunch of think tanks at Claremont. Those are the people who are in the next generation who are, are really sort of pushing the boundaries. And you also see that reflected in politics with, you know, people like Josh Hawley and J.D. Vance and this next generation of younger Republican leaders who are willing to sort of think outside of the, the parameters that fusionist orthodoxy has set for conservatism for the last few decades. If I could add a bit of texture to something that I think we've assumed because it's the normal assumption uh, in the conversation so far, it's important to, in much the same way, I mean, this is extending the observation about Reaganism versus Trumpism as isms, but the American conservatism has had essentially the same conversations every 10 years for the last 60, basically since, well, longer than 60 years, since the New Deal, essentially. Um, there's been the same competing impulses between kind of strong religious social conservatism and pro-market kind of old Rockefeller Republicanism and national greatness slash global liberalism, strong security state conservatism. And basically none of those factions have actually ever not been a part of it. Like when we talk about, you know, meme politics and we worry about Catholic integralism or something like that, Brent Bozell was writing Triumph Magazine back in the mid 20th century on much the same questions. And Buckley was having those conversations with them and having conversations with libertarians who were interested in legalizing pot. Like none of this is new. What happens is that every decade or so, some settlement is found for now. And then at some point people are discontent with the settlement or like Republicans are given an opportunity to govern again. And then they find out they're really bad at governing, which is just true. Uh, and so suddenly they realize they need to go back to the drawing board and have these conversations again. And so I think it's important, like as useful as a lot of these labels and heuristics are for having the conversation now, it's also important not to get ahead of ourselves and think like, oh, these are original thoughts. And it's like, no, I mean, Russell Kirk was introducing, oh, you know, he's the grand grandpappy of paleoconservatism, he wouldn't have called himself really a paleoconservative. I think someone else called him that. But, um, but like these, we've had these conversations before, and that's an important part of taking seriously where we are, is that it's, it's sort of baked into these impulses about, you know, what is the meaning of the American founding? And by being the technological and military superpower, like, 
What is our role in the world? Like that stuff has all been, it's the 20th, it's a story, it's, it's really the post-war American story. And we just keep trying to rehash what a conservative approach to being America is when we're the big dog. So, well, Michael, you mentioned governance. So we'll move uh, a little bit more towards governance that I think a lot of people on the right hasn't been so great lately, uh, which is the city of Portland. So uh, let's transition the conversation into talking uh, about Portland right now. And part of our thesis of this podcast, which I think we went over a little bit before, is that basically the nationalization of politics has really overtaken local issues. And that also, because things are so nationalized, that local issues can also spring up and turn into national debates really quickly. And I think that the best example that that's happened so far is what's going on, one of the best examples is what's going on in Portland. When I was at the Trump Super PAC, we were running political ads in Pennsylvania, showing images of what was happening in Portland. Kevin McCarthy, you know, uh, President Trump and other Republicans have said that Portland's like a war zone. It's an anarchist zone. It's crazy there. Uh, that's kind of the, the, the GOP view of things. On the other side of things, you have folks like, I remember this reporter at CNN went to Portland and he went around on Twitter and took photos and was like, oh, look at the war zone. Like, it's so crazy. And it was just like pictures of ice cream shops and stuff. Uh, <laughs> so obviously two really far bills, right? We have a war zone and then other guys like, yeah, this is a great place for ice cream and like donuts and stuff like that. What is kind of the, and you know, Portland just keeps popping up over and over again. It's probably every three weeks, if not even more, that something that's happening in Portland pops up in the national debate. I'm curious of, and Nate, we'll start with you. What are the sort of good faith arguments you think are happening in Portland and what are the sort of bad faith ones? Like from your perspective as an actual Oregonian, someone who lives here and is on the right, like what actually is going on in Portland that we're seeing right now? Yeah, I mean, as with a lot of things, it's somewhere between what, uh, you know, Bill O'Reilly says it is, and uh, CNN and MSNBC say it is. Uh, I was, you know, as I said, I I live up in Hood River, which is like an hour or so outside of uh, Portland. And I drove down a lot this summer to report on what was going on for City Journal, uh, which is a a magazine based in New York. And it was bad. I mean, there's, we, we shouldn't mince words about the fact that what was happening in Portland, downtown specifically, was really bad. The law enforcement often had their hands tied because they didn't have any allies in, in city governments and no one was in their corner, so they couldn't actually enforce the laws. And, uh, you know, the this this group of people, you want to call it Antifa, Black Lives Matter, general just sort of protesters, occupied uh, a few blocks uh, downtown and and basically made it a lawless zone for, for months on end. Um, now, that was relatively concentrated in a, a relatively small area of downtown Portland. So this idea that all of Portland was on fire and that it was, you know, literally anarchy in any part of Portland, you couldn't sort of walk down the street and without getting, you know, beaten by Antifa or something was uh, hyperbolic uh, to say the least. Um, you know, there's, there are plenty of- I think of that, that ben, ben was actually out there waiting to beat up Republicans. I was looking for you, Nate. I was I was ready, <laughs> yeah. but I didn't see it. Ben you. with a uh, black block. Yeah, no, I, I mean, actually, I, I think it punched, <laughs> punched in the face um, by Antifa wow. uh, at the, in uh, 2017 at the protest wow. in Portland uh, for the Trump inauguration. Whole different story. But uh, the, the the basic fact is is it was really bad and it reflects- one of the reasons that it was bad is it reflects a systemic failure in Portland governance, which is that you have 
a mayor and a, a local city government that is unwilling to enforce basic laws because they're scared of the activist class in Portland, which is incredibly powerful. That doesn't mean that all of Portland was on fire uh, or that you know the entire city was a war zone uh, or that people were just getting you know murdered in the streets willy-nilly. And you don't have to make that argument to say that what was happening was really bad. But it is true that you have the consequences of this dereliction of duty, frankly, by, by local folks in, in Portland government is going to be felt uh, in Portland for decades. You know, businesses fleeing, a variety of different businesses shutting down, people you know, f- moving out of the city because they, they just can't take it anymore and they're worried about safety. And the people that are hurt by that, by the way, are oftentimes the folks at the bottom, the most vulnerable folks that the activists claim to speak for. You know, it's not sort of well-to-do middle, upper middle class, uh, white Portland families who are going to be hurt by this. It's the low income, often immigrant business owners. And it's the folks in low income, generally non-white communities that see like massive crime spikes as a result. So Nate, have you been, uh, have you, you, you've probably seen the recent developments here. It's funny, a friend of Alex and I's Marshall Kozloff, Kozloff, he's host of Mm -hmm. the realignment podcast. He predicted what would happen, which is as soon as Biden wins, the city of Portland elected leaders would very quickly shift their tone towards this and it's happened. So now the the mayor is calling for unmasking of Antifa and, you know, asking people to kind of, so I saw, I don't know who it was, um, but someone drew a comparison to what Ted Wheeler was saying in Portland with what Dallas Heard, who's the newly elected chair of the Oregon Republican Party, who was calling for people who complained about public health violations to be unmasked and posted and like attacked. So yeah, I think what what Marshall's point was, was like, this is all politics. It was never about policy. It was never about businesses. It was never about people. It was all about now the the political incentives have shifted. So I'm anti-Antifa now. I do think that there's a big difference between what Antifa is doing now with these like 50 or 60 people roaming through the streets versus, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of people who are rallying together at that moment. But um, I do think there's a lot of cynicism from the elected leaders in their response. Micah, do you have a take on what, what what's happening in Portland? Well, I would just say that it's um, largely a media phenomenon, right? If the rest of the country, I mean, from my seat here in DC, like if the rest of the country were to never hear about it, then Wheeler wouldn't be able to make, you know, there wouldn't be political incentives at play except for just normal city politics. Like what is, you know, what is my, what did my voter base want? What is, what does business support, what do businesses want? You know, how do we keep law and order, basic stuff like that? Like the issue, it can only be a cynical political play, the stage for that, because it's made a stage by national media and, or, or by operators like Titus. Uh, And so (laughs) that's, I mean, that's a huge part of our political moment is that we are in a uh, disinformation slash misinformation slash information, you know, we'll call it like, you could call it 5G cold civil war, whatever you want, if you <laughs> want to overstate the danger of it. But you can also say just like people are battling for mind space and your attention and shaping the reality you live in since we live so much of our reality, you know, so much of our lives psychologically extended into this non-space that is digital media. And so politics is much more, I mean, it's so hilarious. This is really to put on my nerd glasses. So I apologize. Um, I'll, I'll straighten out my bow tie. Um, it's, it's really been a phenomenal illustration of Plato's cave analogy, right? Like in some sense, you know, Plato's describing a much larger 
question about the nature of reality, but he's also talking about the city and life and politics versus life in, in reflection on eternal truths. And now we're seeing that even like more obviously that there are just these fantasies that have a small basis in reality, the puppet before the fire that are you know being projected onto the wall and people are treating them as real. And, and because we are kind of a pretty simple animal with easily scared reptilian brains, we have to take it seriously. It bleeds, it leads. And so, you know, you, you see these images of mostly peaceful, fiery protests, and that's <laughs> going to take up a lot of your limbic capital, so to speak, or, or your adrenaline response. And so by maintaining this kind of fight flight response, that's how they sell advertising dollars. And it's also how people move the needle on political questions. So a huge part of this is that we live in this digital marketplace and, and this saturated 24 hour news cycle that changes the landscape and can change at any moment. And so that, and it creates these layers upon layers where it's hard to say whose incentives are driving things and really to understand who's in charge. And to a large degree that's by design because then if no one's responsible, then no one can be held, held to account. And so these systems, as they grow in complexity, Become, I mean, this, these are the conversations we're having here on Capitol Hill about what to do as far as regulating big tech and specifically social media platforms. Like who's actually responsible at that point in these kinds of dispersed network effect based technologies. And uh, since we're all producing the content, you know, who's in charge? Yeah. Uh, I wish we could talk more about the Portland side because I think there's so much, there's so much to talk about there, but we got to get to Nate's op-ed in the National Review because it was Oregon specific. So I, I definitely recommend listeners check out the op-ed in the National Review. But to summarize, there's basically two claims that I pulled out. One is like the state of Oregon is a disaster and an example of progressive governance unchecked. Um, like a lot of, you know, Nate outlined some really bad outcomes in education, public health, et cetera. And part two is the Oregon Republican Party is so incompetent and the, uh, the voters have a tendency to vote for extremist people that they're unable to actually compete, despite the fact that the, the sort of democratic stronghold isn't producing good outcomes. Is that, Nate, is that a fair summary? Yeah, no, that's right. And I think um, the sort of predicament for the Oregon Republican Party as it stands today, at least, is it seems like the wishes of the Republican base in Oregon are sort of directly at odds with the interests of the Republican Party statewide in terms of winning office, right? So you have, you know, hardcore QAnon people getting nominated for the, uh, you know, for the Republican ticket for the Oregon Senate race, right? And you have, um, there's a there's a sort of there's a laundry list of examples of sort of kooks and crazies being elevated to positions of power because they appeal to a relatively small sort of part of the even the Republican base, but the most politically engaged to the folks that show up for every single, you know, school board race and primary, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And those most politically engaged people, at least uh, sometimes nominate people that would never get elected statewide. So it's, um, it, I, I don't know exactly how you remedy that, except I guess the first step is, is becoming aware that, that it's a problem. But if the Oregon Republican Party wants to win statewide office, which I'm not convinced they do, frankly, I think a lot of them are perfectly happy to just sort of be, you know, the permanent minority that can kind of stand up and grandstand. And it's actually, it's not totally different from the National Republican Party, which is a lot of, a lot of establishment Republicans don't actually care about winning. They're perfectly happy to sort of win 47% of the vote year in, year out, and get to be the minority that goes on Fox News and, you know, talks angrily about how the Democrats are doing socialism or something. But 
but once they get into actual power, it's a lot harder because they actually have to govern and are held accountable for their decisions. So, I, I think a lot of Oregon Republicans are like that as well. So I wanna I wanna challenge the premise a little bit, and maybe not the part that you think I'm gonna challenge, but if you look back through the history of statewide elections, let's look at governorship and Jeff Merkley Senate seat. You've got Dr. Newt Bueller in 2018, who's like a moderate's moderate. Basically, you know, like he's the the dig on Joe Biden, which I, I think is actually semi-fair and semi-unfair is like, he just aligns himself to wherever he thinks the political center is at that moment. Um, that yeah. was Newt Bueller, right? Like Newt Bueller is like constantly shifted to fit mm-hmm. with the moment. He got almost double the number of votes of any other candidate in the primary, including some conservatives and lost to Kate Brown by six or seven points. Dr. Mm-hmm. Bud Pierce in the cycle before, moderate medical doctor from Salem, same thing, won the primary, then loses to Kate Brown by seven. Then you've got legislator, conservative, Dennis Richardson, who's a state representative who was like kind of out there on social issues, like said some pretty offensive things on gay rights and other things, won the primary, loses in uh, the general by about seven points. Then my favorite example, so you mentioned Joe Ray Perkins, who's like the QAnon I yeah. think ar- arguably the craziest not nominee. That's for what I Senate. said in the article. She's like the most hardcore QAnon of any of the sort of people. Yeah, the Republican standard, the standard yeah. bearer for the QAnon. Totally caucus. unapologetic. Yeah, <laughs> says yeah. So she actually got closer to beating Jeff Merkley than Dr. Monica Webby, the national recruit who was going to be the savior for the Republicans because she was a medical doctor and a moderate. And so when I she also at- I believe was the first Republican nationally who was running for Senate who came out in support of gay marriage. Uh, someone can fact check me on that, but I think she was the first one or she was definitely one of the first. So, so that was a big deal too, in terms of the moderate brand. Which like makes me wonder like if the moderates and the super right wing and like they're all losing by about the same amount of points to about the same political figures, like whether it be Kate Brown or Jeff Merkley or John Kitzhaber, they're all like, again, progressive Democrats, but not like Bernie Democrats and also not like, you know, center left Democrats. like they're sort of in the mainstream of where the Democratic Party is. What is actually going on? Is it lack of party infrastructure? Is it lack of money? Like, is it like Titus, I think you used to have a theory that like primary voters weren't turning out in the general because they had nothing to vote for. Like, I genuinely don't know what to make of those five election outcomes where everyone loses because I think I guess the reason I ask this, Nate, is because I think your premise, I don't think uh, Oregon's as bad as uh, as you probably do, but I think it is fair that like, you know, I think about we had a we had um, uh, someone from the Drug Policy Alliance on who was talking about like Oregon is a really bad state when it comes to addiction and when it comes to mental health services, like that's true. And I think Democrats should agree with that too. But, you know, we had medical doctors running for governor who, you know, didn't even come close. So What's the theory? What, like, Micah, do you have a take? I don't know if you've read Nate's op-ed. Do you have a take on, like, what might be going on under the surface here? I mean, I think my theory is that it's an extension of this larger nationalization of American politics and that we keep having these debates in badly state-contextualized versions of the kind of whatever the hot topic is on cable news of the day, rather than people seriously running on it's a it's a joke now, but infrastructure uh, or just infrastructure affecting week. people's or just like affecting people's lives, right? So if if you had a, I think if you had a like socially distinctive candidate, distinctively on the right or distinctively conservative candidate who was able to talk coherently about federal land use and lumber policy and you know, 
water protection, you know, like could, could combine both a kind of pro-market and also pro-environmental message in a way that deflates the sort of accusation that you just want to you know, let industry come in and, and wreck everything. I think that takes a lot of the air out of the confusion in the middle and allows the middle to come into play again, as opposed to everything being driven by the kind of outer edges of the conversation. The problem is people are just bad at doing that. And most of the, it seems like most of the infrastructure behind the people who are trying to do state-based policy initiatives and, and write the white papers to supply these, you know, to allow these conversations to happen, they often are naturally enough supported by particular industrial interests and stuff like that. And so there's going to be ways in which they're just playing into their extensions of the national conversation as well, right? You know, again, Titus knows this better than I do, but DC is full of organizations that can create all these astroturf shadow, you know, local enterprises that are going to drive for particular, you know, local interests. And, uh, and for those listening, those are some heavy air quotes and I apologize, uh, but <laughs> <laughs> that that defines so much of these conversations, so many of these conversations. And so instead of actually talking about how to make youth homelessness, solve the youth homelessness and addiction crisis in Portland, which is a serious issue, or just the homelessness crisis in general, or to work on you know local family support policies in much the same way that there's been some discussion of here in DC, rather than doing that, state politics gets reduced to just more, you know, kind of JV version of the cable soundbite debates. And, and that's not helping anyone, but it makes these elections even less meaningful than usual, even though local politics ought to be the most pressing and the most meaningful you know, elections you get to participate in, right? In some sense, our rights as Americans are best expressed by like our ability to get a trial of our peers and vote in a local election. Because the, the law of large numbers, like it's true that a certain, at a certain point, your solitary participation in, in national politics is pretty limited, but unfortunately we we've gotten our priorities backwards. Nate, curious if you um, want to chime in here. Yeah. I was just looking up like the uh, registered numbers for Republicans and Democrats and independents in Oregon. And it's, it is, there's Democrats definitely outnumber Republicans, but there's a lot of independents um, still. What those independents are, I think is, you know, an open question because it could be folks who are sort of to the left of the Democratic Party, you know, Bernie Bernie wasn't a wasn't a Democrat, a registered Democrat for most of his political career. But Ben, your your counterpoints are good counterpoints, right? So I, I don't have perfect answers. It's possible that it's just impossible for a Republican to win statewide office in Oregon as it stands today. I mean, that is not something that that I want to admit, but it it is a, a possibility, right? There are some places where Republicans just can't win. I tend to think the landscape now is different than it was even a couple of years ago for someone like uh, like Bueller. But also, I mean, Bueller's, I think to your point, Ben, Bueller's uh, weak point was that he didn't have conviction, right? And that makes voters not trust you, right? It was clear that he was doing the moderation thing because he seemed like it was politically advantageous. You can have someone who isn't all in on the sort of conservative culture war stuff like they would be in like Alabama, who still is a man or woman of conviction and and uh, and is is really committed to the issues that they're talking about and you know 
in after a year where there has been uh, widespread unrest in, in places like, like Portland, a lot of people's lives have been affected by that. The teachers unions uh, are in Oregon are some of the most influential and corrupt teachers unions in any state in the country. And the result is that we're second to last in the country for school openings, despite you, the fact. What, when you say corruption, what are you referring to? Well, their they they their control in the state legislature is uh, is as bad as, as any state legislature that I know of, and and that's reflected in the fact that despite the fact that they got the state legislature to prioritize teachers for vaccines, we're still second to last in school openings uh, in the country. So teachers got everything that they wanted and more, and kids got you know the the short end of the stick. So all that is to say, like you know, those are kitchen table issues that a, a Republican could run on and be a quote unquote moderate, right? Without sort of being sort of vocally pro-life or something, but would speak to sort of center left suburbanites who, you know, are broadly think of themselves as liberal, but you know, are, you know, run businesses and, you know, have kids in schools and have the sort of like familial interests that keep them from moving too far left. But uh, you, again, you need someone who wasn't like Bueller and was clearly sort of like had his finger in the wind and trying to figure out which way to go. Like the appeal of someone like Trump, right? Uh, is that he is, for all of the critiques you could make of him, he was not someone who appeared to have his finger in the wind. He picked issues that were, you know, broadly unpopular with Republican orthodoxy, and he didn't care what the sort of Republican elite said about him. He went for it, and that's appealing to voters, right? It doesn't actually, the issue itself and where you stand on it almost doesn't matter as much as whether or not you're someone who has conviction and clearly authentically believes what you're saying. Um, so I, I, that's the best answer I can give, but again, it's it's possible that that no for all of those things a Republican still couldn't beat a Democrat. Yeah, and before I want to I close this out here because I know we're at time, but I actually agreed with points that both of you made, Mike. It, it's funny you brought up the interest group because one thing that I think that the so-called moderates have done so poorly in Oregon is they always appeal to the other side's interest group in the sense of. Dr. Monica Webby and Dr. Bueller were like, tried to come out and say, I am just as pro-choice. I am just as safe on abortion as these other people. And we know clearly they're trying to appeal to sort of those specific interest groups. And of course, what do those interest groups do? They just said, you know, New Bueller sits the same that Donald Trump does on abortion, even though that's just equivocally false. But I mean, that's how politics has changed and that's exactly what they're going to do. So yeah, Micah, it's funny because we're not even appealing to, I feel like some of our traditional interest groups, uh, air quotes, we're trying to appeal to the other side who just frankly don't like us very much. And then, yeah, Nate, I, I totally agree with everything, most of what you said about the Oregon Republican Party. If I was actually running an election right now, uh, I would actually probably run against the Oregon Republican Party as a Republican, because no matter if you're like the squishiest, moderate, you know, like, I don't know, like I'm basically, I'm a rhino or whatever, or if you're like much more conservative or like a Trump conservative like me, the party has failed you no matter what. Like we continuously lose elections, we continuously embarrass ourselves on the national stage. The conservatives don't do well. The moderates don't do well. Like, why would anyone run in favor of the Republican Party when, like, they've basically helped? They haven't helped you no matter who you are, if you're a moderate or if you're a conservative. Like, they've just continuously lost, and the left has continuously gained power in Oregon. So, yeah, I, I, I do think that you're right. It's uh, and that's something we talked about a lot on the show. It's definitely time for, uh, I think, for a, a health check-in with the Oregon GOP to see where we can potentially fix some things there. But yeah, guys, thanks so much for, for coming on. And before uh, we close this out, I definitely want people to know uh, where they can follow you, where they can read more about your work, where they can follow what you're doing. So Nate, we'll start with you. And then uh, Micah, yeah, if you guys just want to say where people can find you on Twitter, or if you have a website or anything like that, that'd be great. 
Yeah, you can just follow me at Twitter. It's at NJ Hockman, N-J-H-O-C-H-M-A-N. And I post all my work there as well as just tweet dumb things pretty regularly. <laughs> yeah, again, I'm Micah Meadowcroft. I'm managing editor at the American Conservative. And you can follow me on Twitter at, at Micah Edocroft. Uh, there wasn't room for two M's. So it's just my name, but no M on the second one. Micah Edocroft. Thanks. There's some great bison photos I saw on Micah's Twitter feed before uh, before we came on. So go check See out. See a bison, post a bison. You gotta do it. <laughs> Him and Santi. Yeah. There's uh, uh, Micah and my friend Santi wrote a really good national review piece about um, bringing uh, bringing the buffalo back. But that's a. That was all Santi. I mean, we talked about it, but he, he wrote that himself. Right. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. But go check yeah, bisonism, it out. Bisonism is the future. <laughs> my, Micah got the byline too, as, as every good DC guy should. So we're good on that one, Micah. <laughs> Uh, no, guys, well, well, thanks again for, for joining. Uh, and everyone, thanks again for listening. Please give us five stars. Please hit that subscribe button and go follow us on Twitter. We are at Oregon Bridge Pod. Uh, and we'll see you in the next one. See you, everyone.